the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Today on the program, we are going to talk with Chris Howard. That's a female Chris Howard. Spell difference. C-H-R-Y-S. Kind of different. Anyway, Chris Howard will join us. Uh, her book is uh, Rockstar Grandparent, How You Can Lead, uh, Lead the Way, and Light the Road and Launch a Legacy. It's published by Waterbrook. We'll uh, talk with her later this hour. And then in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Jim Campbell about a very important case about Title Seven and how the word sex is interpreted and who has the authority to interpret it. It may not make a whole lot of sense now, but it's one of the more significant cases. The Supreme Court yesterday, or actually Monday, uh, announced that they are going to take up along with two others. Now, we talked a little bit about that yesterday, but today we'll talk with Jim Campbell. He's senior counsel with the Alliance Defending Freedom, where he focuses on appellate litigation. We'll talk about the uh, Supreme Court's decision to weigh uh, weigh in on whether the EEOC can redefine the word, broadening it to uh, include what the uh, clear language of the law in Title VII um, does not say. So we'll get into that with him later in the 5 o'clock hour. Well, Rush Limbaugh was on Fox News last night uh, and was asked questions about the former vice president and his bid to uh, seek the White House, or at least seek his party's nomination. And we're expected to hear from the former vice president tomorrow announcing his bid. Now, it was supposed to be today. It's since been moved past, and I'm not altogether convinced it will be tomorrow, but we'll see. But anyway, uh, Rush Limbaugh said that uh, Joe Biden is uh, Democrats' best chance of beating Trump, but... Um, he said that the former vice president is the Democrats um, uh, has no chance rather to win the primary. Here's the thing, he said, Joe Biden is probably the best chance they've got and he doesn't have a chance. They're probably um, Joe Biden and crazy Bernie Sanders and Mayor Pete Buttigieg, three white guys. Two of them are brontosauruses, I'm quoting, from Jurassic Park, and that isn't going to sit well with the rest of his party. Now, it's interesting that those two brontosauruses, as he's described them, are the top two on the ticket so far, even though the former vice president has yet to announce. So I'm not sure that's the case. And if you want to be honest, there's another brontosaurus running on the other side if age is the issue. Anyway, uh, he called them brontosauruses from Jurassic Park, and that isn't going to sit well with the rest of the party, which has gone so far left. He uh, was speaking on the story with Martha McCallum. He also said that Biden may not be fully committed to running in 2020. Biden, long his uh, long-awaited 2020 presidential bid announcement has been pushed back from Wednesday to Thursday, and we'll see if that does, in fact, happen. Well, the announcement would end months of speculation as the 76-year-old has mulled making what would be a third White House bid. And despite the recent Me Too controversy uh, complicating his would-be campaign, the former vice president has remained at the top of the most public opinion polls. Uh, The former vice president uh, Biden's potential political campaign hit a bump recently after several women complained publicly about 
the prospective 2020 Democratic candidate, accusing him of touching them inappropriately at events. And we all know what they're referring to. Uh, Most of them said they didn't think it was sexual, but was creepy, was one word being used. 20 candidates are in the lineup. It's time to pick number one. Well, is it? But the number one uh, in the polls remains um, Joe Biden. He was vice president for eight years. He has a has been a public servant in the Senate and the House for a number of years. The race through the White House is about delegates. And the question is, will he have enough to go the distance? But what's his vision? We uh, will hear from the vice president, one would assume, um, about what that will be. And that's what this generation of Democrats will be asking him. Where do you want to take us? And that will be the burden to be borne by the former vice president entering a very crowded field. Um, the, uh, let's see, Whoopi Goldberg and uh, Megan McCain on The View um, has been uh, sort of back and forth on um, their views on some of these most uh, recent issues. And Bernie Sanders' call to let prisoners vote has sparked a heated debate uh, on an, an about face uh, among one of his rivals. Well, the 2020 presidential candidate, uh, Senator Sanders, caused quite a stir when he said during a CNN town hall on Monday that convicted criminals should be allowed to vote. Well, Meghan McCain seemed flabbergasted that Goldberg agreed with Sanders. Cher, an unapologetic celebrity liberal icon, blasted Sanders so thoroughly on Twitter that Donald Trump Jr. welcomed her to the Republican Party. The backlash appears to have caused potential 2020 rivals U.S. Senator uh, Kamala Harris uh, to rethink her views, and she's done a lot of that. She's taken sort of a broad view, a view to the left, and then it's not altogether clear she wants to be a centrist or on the far left continuum of the party. After initially saying we should have that conversation, which is pretty noncommittal about allowing criminals currently in prison to vote, uh, the senator appeared to uh, to backtrack, saying Tuesday that criminals such as murderers and terrorists should be deprived of their right to vote. So she needs to pick a side and camp there. White House uh, is fighting Democrat subpoenas requesting the president's tax records. Uh, they're going to fight the House Democrat subpoena to testify and the documents for ex-White House counsel Don McGahn. And almost immediately, House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jerry Nadler characterized the move as one more act of obstruction by the Trump administration. Well, the brewing fight over the McCain, uh, McGahn rather, subpoena was poised to uh, set up quite a uh, series of other contentious legal showdowns as Democrats are seeking to publicly question more uh, current and former Trump aides who were featured prominently in special counsel Robert Mueller's report on the Russia investigation. In addition, Carl Klein, a former White House personnel security director subpoenaed by Democrats, uh, did not show up uh, yesterday for a scheduled deposition. To make matters worse, between Democrats and the Trump White House, the administration defied a demand from Ways and Means Committee Chairman Richard Neal Uh, to turn over six years of the president's tax returns, both while in office and most while not. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin asked for more time and said that he would uh, give the panel a final decision by the 6th of May. Well, all eyes will be on Wall Street uh, today after stocks closed at a new all-time high on Tuesday as better-than-expected quarterly profits from some of the largest companies encouraged investors. The S&P 500 hit an all-time high, marking the stock market's complete recovery from a nosedive at the end of the year. The uh, benchmark index's previous uh, record was set last September, shortly before the market sank in the fourth quarter with fears of a recession, an escalating trade war between the U.S. and China, and concern the Federal Reserve was moving too aggressively to raise interest rates. 
Still, shares were mostly lower in Asia on Wednesday as the rally on Wall Street ran out of steam. Investors seem unswayed by the S&P 500's uh, performance. We're going to continue to wind our way through the news, but we do need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 19 minutes after 4 o'clock is the time you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I don't know if you had the opportunity yet to tune in to Better Together on TBN, but this is their premiere week, and you can uh, step in and listen in on the conversation that's just really been great. The first program on Monday was about friendships that last, and all of us want friendships that are going to stand the test of time. Today they talked about making time for friends. You know, when things get really difficult, it can be difficult to find time and make room for the people who are going to encourage you to continue in the faith and continue in the right path. Well, they talked about that today on uh, Better Together. You can listen to the broadcast, which is by women for women. It's the first daily original program that TBN has uh, produced of late. Uh, And you can check that out uh, 1030 a.m. here Pacific time every morning, Monday through Friday. Uh, Victoria Olstein, Lori Crouch, Christine Kane. You never know who the guests are going to be, but there's an opportunity for uh, for you to listen to women who live lives. Well, just like ours, they're going to talk about relationships, friendships, identity, social media, intimacy with God, children and family, how to hear God's voice. So check out Better Together TBN's program for women women, by women, join the circle for some genuine dialogue, for a, a challenging opportunity. And they even have a telephone number. If you need to talk to somebody while the program is on, you can do that as well. Better Together. And by the way, go to tbn.org, Better Together, and uh, you can find out what the next program is going to be about and uh, check out all of that information. All right. Better Together. We've been looking at some of the headline news and stories that are developing um, Jeopardy champ James Holzhauser has just broken another record on Tuesday's episode. Now, I mentioned this. My mother, 88, she uh, watches this program every night, and I think it's stimulating to her to try to answer a lot of the questions. And it's fascinating, these kind of random questions in specific categories. Uh, they come up, she comes up with an answer, and a lot of times she's right, but it's, it kind of checks her mind and her memory. Anyway, Jeopardy! champ uh, James Holzhauser has just broken another record on Tuesday's episode. The 34-year-old surpassed $1 million in the shortest time ever. I think my mom probably could have done that. She she gets a lot of these answers. Any $1,118,000 million. Um, anyway, 14 games. This is the third separate record that he has shattered since he started competing on the game show. Last Wednesday, he won the episode with a total of $1 million, um, let's see, $131,000, topping the one-day record he set earlier with $110,000. Jeopardy. That might be a retirement plan. See if I can get on the show. The White House plans to fight a subpoena issued by the House Judiciary Committee. We talked a little bit about that. The former White House counsel, Don McGahn, uh, was called upon to testify. The administration also plans to oppose other requests for House committees uh, for testimony or of current or former aides about actions the White House described in uh, special counsel Robert Mueller's report. And the Treasury Department uh, yesterday missed a second deadline from House Democrats to provide the president's tax returns. More than 200 individuals have come forward with new allegations of sexual abuse by members of the Boy Scouts of America in recent weeks as a trio of law firms seek to uncover unidentified child abusers. A few of the victims are young, still underage and in their 20s or rather in their 20s. But many have held uh, their secrets close for decades 
according to USA Today reporting on the story. Only a handful of the new allegations are related to previously identified perpetrators. So this is a whole new crop of uh, would-be perpetrators alleged. About 90 percent are new. The Boy Scouts organization faces 200 lawsuits that its uh, insurance companies threatened to stop covering. All told, there may be as many as 12,000 victims. Hmm. As we mentioned earlier, former Vice President Joe Biden will announce his presidential bid on Thursday morning with an online video. The vice president will then appear in Pittsburgh uh, for an event that's going to be on Monday following at a local union hall. Uh, NBC has learned the former vice president will then embark on a tour of the four early voting states, Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina and Nevada. He's not swinging by Portland uh, in the following weeks. You will find him there. However, according to the Texas Tribune, less than seven months into the fiscal year, the number of undocumented immigrants who have been apprehended or turned themselves into the U.S. Border Patrol agents in the Rio Grande Valley has already surpassed all of last year's total. The 164,000 illegal immigrants arrested just since October is higher than the 2018 aggregate of uh, 162,262 for the full year. The increase is the result of an ongoing surge of migrants, uh, most of uh, them from Central America. And I understand there is perhaps the largest yet making its way to the border now. Meanwhile, the Washington Examiner reports the Mexican government says it has deported 15,000 migrants who illegally entered Mexico from Guatemala and had been traveling as part of caravans in hopes of reaching the United States' southern border, though thousands more people continue to traverse the country intent on reaching the U.S. Well, beginning in 2020, many advanced placement students will be using an American history textbook that suggests President Trump is mentally ill and that depicts him and many of his supporters as racists. The book asserts that Trump, um, not very hidden racism, connected with a significant number of primary voters, What connected with a significant number of primary voters was Trump's strong opposition to illegal immigration, his concern over terrorists entering the U.S. The textbook effectively characterizes these concerns as not very hidden racism and those who share them as racists. Well, the textbook goes further. It says that Hillary Clinton supporters worried about the mental stability of the president-elect. Nothing like an objective Textbook. Well, President Trump will pay a state visit to the UK in early June, according to Buckingham Palace, which says the president has accepted an invitation from Queen Elizabeth II to visit America's closest ally. Even before Buckingham Palace and the White House issued confirmation of the trip, protest groups in the UK announced their plans to demonstrate against the American president and his policies. We have to march in huge numbers against his racism, misogyny, transphobia, and the threat he poses to the planet. Activist and writer Owen Jones wrote in a tweet that was shared by the U.K.'s Stop Trump Coalition. Uh, And President, uh, the president of Sri Lanka, whose name I will not attempt to mispronounce, demanded the resignations of two top security officials today as new details emerged about the nine suicide bombers who carried out devastating attacks that killed some 359 people, injured 500 plus more on Easter Sunday. Uh, The president asked um, the country's police chief and the defense secretary to step down amid growing furor surrounding the government's failure to act on intelligence, warning of possible attacks on churches by an obscure Islamic extremist group that came from India. Not the group, but the uh, warnings came from India. And on this day in 1995, the final bomb linked to the Unabomber explodes inside the Sacramento, California offices of a lobbying group 
for the wood products industry, killing chief lobbyist Gilbert Murray. Theodore Kaczynski would later be sentenced to four lifetimes in prison for a series of bombings that killed three men and injured 29 others. And on this day in 1990, the space shuttle Discovery blasts off from Cape Canaveral, Florida, carrying the $1.5 billion Hubble Space Telescope. And on this day in 1800, Congress approves a bill establishing the Library of Congress. Well, there you have it. I spent much of the day today watching, at least working and watching, the memorial and procession for Deputy Justin DeRossier. He's... um, was laid to rest today. Thousands paid their respects to the fallen Cowlitz County Sheriff's deputy during a procession and memorial today. DeRossier was shot on the night of April 13th while checking on a, a complaint about a motorhome blocking a driveway near Kalama. He died earlier in the morning of April 14th. His suspected killer was shot and killed by police that same night. A procession took uh, his body from the Cowlitz County Fairgrounds to the Child Center at Portland State University. Community members who weren't in Portland for the memorial filled the Longview New Life Church in Kelso High School to watch the simulcast. The Kelso School District canceled classes for the day to let students, teachers, and staff attend the memorial services. Cowlitz County and U.S. Bank have opened a donation account for the Deputy Justin DeRossier. His memorial fund, he is uh, survived by his wife and his six-month-old daughter, Uh, That fund will be used to help uh, cover the memorial expenses and remaining funds will go directly to the DeRossier family. Um, Again, with his six-month-old daughter who will never know her father as a a toddler, as a teenager, as a bride, as a young mother. Very moving. Um, And it's hard to explain if you haven't seen it, the pomp and respect that is given by law enforcement as they entered the facility uh, as they exited, as they handled the flag, as they saluted their fallen colleague, it was really, um, really something to see. And every once in a while, in this very solemn uh, but honest ceremony, you could hear his little six-month-old daughter making a little bit of uh, of noise, uh, completely unaware of what was happening and how that would shape her future and alter her life forever. Remember the the uh, Derosier family in your prayers, if you will. As they are learning to live with new normal, he is survived by his parents. He has a a younger sister and, of course, his wife and six-month-old daughter. By all accounts, he was an incredible servant, a public servant, who cared a lot about his community, felt called to law enforcement. And they had a rather lengthy video of his life. And it was fun for me because I, I know nothing of him except his public service to learn a little bit about him. I believe it was 28, 29, so he was very young. Um, and his life cut short because somebody decided they were going to shoot him down uh, in cold blood. Well, coming up, we're going to talk with Chris Howard. And by the way, she is uh, connected with the Duck Dynasty. We'll explain all of that when she joins us. But her book is titled Rockstar Grandparent, How You Can Lead the Way, Light the Road, and Launch a Legacy. Chris Howard, coming up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 35 minutes after 4 o'clock. Did you know that 1.7 million become new grandparents every year with an overall number of 70 million grandparents in the United States? Today, grandmas and grandpas have the privilege of playing a vital role in the lives of their young family members, known as Generation Z. 
the most diverse generation in history and the first who do not know the world without smartphones or the Internet. Now, this might be somewhat intimidating. We're going to talk about it. For new grandparents and those with some experience, my next guest, Chris Howard, best-selling author, radio host, grandmother of 14 grandchildren, some who, by the way, are celebrities from TV's Duck Dynasty, and great-grandmother to a newborn, shares in her new book, Rockstar Grandparent, How You Can Lead the Way, Light the Road, and Launch a Legacy. Sage advice and biblical counsel to grandparents looking to build purpose and fun into their lives and relationships with their grandkids. Rockstar Grandparents is full of hints and tips and advice. It's all good for grandparents of all ages and stages. Uh, she is the mother, by the way, of Duck Dynasty star Corey Robertson and is uh, known as Two Mama to her grandchildren. Many of you will recognize that name. Well, Chris Howard, or Two Mama, a former teacher and editor with Howard Publishing, currently hosts a weekly radio show titled It's a Mom Thing. She um, has co-written several books with more than one million copies sold, including the New York Times bestselling cookbook, Miss Kay's Duck Commander Kitchen with Kay Robertson, and Duck Commander Happy, Happy, Happy Stories for Kids with her daughter, Corey Robertson. She and her husband, John, have three children, a growing number of grandchildren, and their spouses and one great-grandchild. They live in West Monroe, Louisiana. She joins us today, however, to talk about her latest book, Rockstar Grandparent. Hey, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This is just so much fun. I'm talking to people in Oregon. <laughs> yeah, Clear across the country. <laughs> I love it. Well, we we are grateful that you've taken the time to talk with us. Let's talk about the difference between grandparenting, say, the last generation or generations and what grandparents today are facing. Do you think there are significant differences? Well, there are significant differences for parenting and for grandparenting today because mainly because of our access to uh, social media and cell phones. That's a game changer for everybody, even our our parents. I, I tell my children who are parenting these children through this age that this is such a tough time, and I'm so proud of them for what they're doing because this is, a, this is hard. This is something we didn't have to uh, wade through when my children were little. Mm-hmm. So, yes, it's a game changer. Now, there's a lot of great things, though, that have come out of it. I um, even just today, I was talking to a grandchild who lives in Huntsville. I was working on a blog for Sadie, who is up in Nashville. I was helping another one who's out working at a camp. You know, just like all of this can be done on the phone and with FaceTime and things that we couldn't have done at all. Grand- my grandparents didn't have the opportunity to do with me. So, yes, a lot has changed. So we have to be on top of it and aware of it. And use it to the best, uh, like anything. We want to redeem it back for God and use it for good. You know, I appreciate your saying that because I think for a lot of grandparents, and this may be true for some parents too, the, the thought of social media and competing with it, they just assume I'm not cool enough and there's no way that I can compete with that and uh, are thoroughly intimidated by it. But I love the way that you suggest putting it to good use can actually be a benefit um, when you uh, when you know how to do it. Oh, absolutely. Today, two of mine uh, led worship at the Christian school here. So, of course, I went to see them. But what I did later was I sent them both a text, you know, telling them how proud I am of them with their leadership and, you know, uh, taking on that responsibility and leading worship. And so just using little things like that, back in the old days, we would have maybe sent a letter or a note. And we don't do that now, but we do have access through texting. 
Now, who are your role models uh, for grandparenting? I had um, some amazing grandparents. Of course, it was a different time. My grandparents didn't come to every ball game I went to. They didn't make sure they had gifts. They didn't, they just, that just wasn't the time. Mm -hmm. But they were amazing role models uh, for the time that they were grandparents. Mine didn't, one lived with us. And the others lived great distance from us. And, you know, back in those days, even a long distance call was expensive. So we didn't talk to them that much. But when we did see them and my parents just kept them alive for us and talked about the heritage uh, that's handed down to us through our grandparents. I think my parents did an amazing job of keeping their parents alive to us. And, of course, in the summers we would go and spend time in the summer. Sometimes we'd spend a month with grandparents, and it was amazing and awesome. So I had great grandparents as role models for me. And then watching my mom, who turned 88 last week, and I'm telling you she's on Instagram. She has a Snapchat account. She is like right in the middle of everything, the reigning matriarch in our family. And I talk about her quite a bit in the book because mom's been such a great role model for all of my, all of us as we were all entering our grandparenting years. And, of course, now I've been a grandmother for 23 years, for a long time now. But we still look up to my mom. She's amazing. Mm, that's, that's quite a legacy. Now, your grandchildren mm-hmm. call you Two Mama. How did you get that name? They do. When um, John Luke was born, he was my firstborn grandchild, and he was calling me Mama and Corey Mama. We couldn't get him to say anything else. We even tried names that we said I would never do. We even tried Mama. You know, we tried everything. (laughs) And he was, like, having none of it. He was just calling her Mama and me Mama, which we knew just couldn't last as much as I loved it. I knew that was not sustainable. And so after Sadie was born, Sadie was, um, he was 21 months old, I guess, when Sadie was born and we brought her home and we had only had her maybe a week and uh, Corey had come to get him from me and he just was crying for me and wanted to stay with me and saying, mama, mama. And I kept saying, mama's in the car. She's ready for you to go. Here's mama, you know, being very supportive of my, my daughter and John Lewis looked up at me and said, to mama, and he never wavered from there. He called me to mama <laughs> for the last 21 years, and literally nearly everybody in West Monroe calls me to mama. <laughs> that it's is so cute. <laughs> Very yeah. endearing. Now, your daughter, Corey, um, as well as several of your grandchildren, have been part of the hit TV show, Duck Dynasty. What kind of challenges did that pose for you as a grandparent and for your family in general? I think there are so many challenges that it could have had, we could have had, but I'm so blessed and so grateful for my other children and my other grandchildren who were able to see it for what it was, for for it was a time and what was going on, because there were a lot of things that I had to let go with the other grandchildren. Like I flew to um, LA and lived with Sadie for the entire three months while she was on Dancing with the Stars. And all of the other grandchildren were so awesome about recognizing that this was a time and a place where I just had to be to help support Sadie in this really huge endeavor. And we we flew them out. Everybody got to come for a weekend and go to the show and be a part of it. We tried to keep everybody a part of it. But there's still, you know, you still just have to learn. It's a balancing act with everything, just like being a mom. If If you've got more than one child, you know it's a balancing act. And with grandchildren, it's the same, just... You know, it's always a bouncing out, but I don't feel guilty. I just do what I need to do. And my mom taught me, you kind of work with who's the oldest and who needs the most, what's needed at the most. And you just move on and do the best you can. And that's what we do. Mm. 
What do you think children need most from their grandparents? That question is such a great question. I think above anything else, they need unconditional love. I think grandparents' house and home and heart is the place they can come for love and support and just to be cheered on. But I do think that they need their grandparents to share their life experiences and to be good role models for them. They need prayers. They need that support and encouragement and cheering that uh, sometimes parents aren't in that position at that time. Maybe the parent is the coach of the team, so it's coming across in a different way. So the grandparents can be in the stands just cheering and yelling and saying, great job, and and leading them in that way. But um, I think the most important thing is just loving them. I think it's, uh, I appreciate your mentioning that talking about your life, your stories, that the assumption is kids aren't really interested. They're old-fashioned. They're no longer relevant. But that is such an important part. I remember with my grandmother hearing stories about her life and the challenges she faced still inspire and influence me today. So I think kids, even in the 21st century, even in Generation Z, uh, they still long for that kind of connection to their own history. Absolutely. I, I say that grandparents are that link and that chain that that links the past to the present. And I think children who know where they come from and know their roots, those are secure children. And so for them to know, even if you just sneak in like a little bitty story, we've always at our table, you know, when we get around the, the table in the kitchen for dinner, we do what we call table talk. And no one can have their phone. Everybody just has to talk and share. Sometimes we draw a question, uh, yeah, questions out of the box. The kids love that. And when you can sneak in a story about your past, I have this great Choctaw Indian heritage that I want the kids to know about. So we talk about that, and we talk about my my other grandparents who went out all the way to San Diego to work in the war effort during World War II. You know, I think they need to know that. And as they get older, I've watched them become more and more interested yes. in knowing those things. Yeah, yes. absolutely. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking with Chris Howard. She's the author of Rockstar Grandparent, How You Can Lead the Way, Light the Road, and Launch a Legacy. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 50 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, continuing my conversation with Chris Howard. She's a former teacher, editor with Howard Publishing, and currently hosts a weekly radio show titled A Mom Thing. She's uh, co-written several books with more than a million copies sold. Today we're talking about one of those books, Rockstar Grandparent, How You Can Lead the Way, Light the Road, and Launch a Legacy. Now, Rockstar Grandparent is no mistake in terms of the title because you make reference to some of the music of the uh, of the 60s and 70s uh, in each of your chapters. Explain how that connection uh, is made for the generation of grandparents who will recognize and appreciate that music. Well, when I was thinking through the book, I just kept thinking of those songs and the baby boomer generation who was a big music generation. And for me, I'm one of those people who, like, I can remember where I was when this song came out in the fifth grade, you know, that kind of a thing. And so songs always had an impact on me. And I just, those songs just kept running through my brain with the words and how they still relate to us, but in such a different way. I mean, a song like with the words, like the sounds of silence, it was like so meaningful and so heavy and so deep when we were 16 and 17. And so, but to think about that today and how we're in this gener with this generation of kids who literally, I was at the movie the other night 
which is a great, great movie, The Breakthrough. I'll say that while yeah, I'm on the, yeah. on the air here. Awesome movie. And an entire row of teenagers were in front of me, but all of them had their cell phones out. You know, so we're in a, a time when I think Sounds of Silence came out way before their day, because now we really are around people who are listening. Nobody's talking, you know, to each other. And so I just, those songs just kept running through my brain. And I thought, well, that would be fun, maybe for uh, grandparent age people to look back on the song as well as, well, how it does impact us today with the words from the song. Yeah. You also make the point that Baby Booner, the the generation, has something unique to offer the young kids in our lives today. Perhaps because of the experience of that generation, you can relate in ways that previous generations might not have been able to. What are some of those unique connections that grandparents from that era have uh, to share with their grandkids? I think there's, I mean, we are the last of a generation to do many things, mainly living without a cell phone. You know, my grandkids are just amazed when I tell them how when school is over, we couldn't call our mother. We just had to wait for her to come get us, you know. (laughs) Times have changed so drastically with that. But so many other things like, uh, you know, going to a drive-in movie and uh, listening, just patience when we would want to, hear a song on the radio and learn the words we'd have to wait till it came on the radio then we'd all grab a pencil and try to write as fast as we could to get the words down and there's just so many things that by the nature of our life we learned lessons like patience and and um, respect and things like that today we have to as parents and grandparents be more intentional to teach the things that we learned just by living life you know we we didn't, everybody didn't have their own room and have their own phone or have their own car. And I, I know everybody doesn't today, but most children have, many children have their own bedroom and have their own things where we didn't have that in our generation. You know, you often shared a room with two siblings, one or two siblings. And so the things that we just learned by living life in the 50s and 60s, today you don't. We have to be more intentional as parents and grandparents that our children learn those lessons. Yeah, absolutely. Now, many grandparents find themselves raising their own grandchildren. Do you have encouragement to offer them? I have not done that, but I have had, my son was a single dad for eight years, and um, I was very the hands-on mama for those kids for eight years. And so I had that experience, but mm-hmm. I have a best friend who adopted her grandchildren. So I've walked that road with her and I've talked to many across the country. And when she got her children, grandchildren, they were 11 and 12, and they are now both in college and just doing beautifully. Her retirement years or older years were not spent like she thought they were going to be with a quiet house and all that. It was filled up with ball games and practices and money for this and that and school and all that kind of thing. But she will just say over and over again, it was the best decision that she ever made. And the children will say that too, as well as many of the others that I've talked to across the country. It won't look, your life won't look the same, but it will look better because you've impacted the life of this child in a way that. Um, nobody could do but the grandparent, the grandmom and the, the grandmother and the grandfather of that child. Nobody's going to love them like you do. And so if you find yourself in that situation, you can do it. You yeah. can do it. Embrace it and walk forward. How can grandparents right. play a role in building a heritage of faith? Uh, that is, of course, the biggest thing is we want to, to li- leave our legacy of faith to our children. And 
and not not do it with pounding on their head, you know, be, live it out. And being the role model is the best thing to do. And then supporting them in the ways that they are living their faith out. Um, like I said, I have a couple of minor singing on a worship team now. I'm so thankful. And some, one's playing piano for one, one's playing drums. That's awesome. But everybody may not find that in their life right now. But the thing that you can do is just lead them by your example and by your encouragement and by your love and just the sweet words that are spoken to them. Grandparents have an opportunity uh, to leave a legacy, uh, a legacy of faith and a legacy of their own history. What legacy do you want to leave uh, with your family? I think our legacy of faith, of course, is hugely important to us. And then it's our legacy of love. We have a very big family. Y'all saw some of it on TV through that. Yeah. But that's just a small, small, small part of it. We have a really big, huge family. And we were all together, of course, Sunday for Easter. And my older sister, who's uh, kind of the next reigning matriarch of our family, uh, just talked to all of us about as our children are all getting older and spreading out and living across the country, we want to never forget that how important our family is. And we're going to be there for each one of you through thick and thin, whatever you need, wherever you go. And when you're not with us, we're going to be praying for you and just know and know that. I think that's the the biggest thing we want to just keep passing down to each of our, our family members is that we have a family who loves you. One of the things you write about is that grandparents need to be intentional. I think about my mother when she gets ready to speak and we're all assembled. We have a smaller family, but when we're all there, her children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren are really poised to hear what she has to say. She doesn't speak a lot, but when she speaks, we know it's something worth hearing and remembering. And I sometimes think grandparents underestimate the value of just raising their voice uh, in the company of their children and grandchildren. Um, because they they don't know that we value them as much as we do. I think that's true. I think we need to tell them how much we yes. value them. And we tell our my mother that often. In fact, this last year, my granddaughter, Sadie Robertson, did her tour. She does a 19 to 20 city tour in the fall. She opened this year's tour with my mother's voice, and it was so precious. And you could literally, every venue could hear a pin drop. And that lets me see that young people really do value the wisdom of, of older people. And they do want it, even though they're rushing here and there, and they've got their cell phones. Really, they don't know they want it, but they do. They want to hear from the wisdom of the uh, older people in our generation. So we need to speak up. We need to be a part of their lives. And even if they act like they don't want it, sometimes I'll tell my grandchildren, I know you don't want to hear this, but I'm going to say this anyway. And I'll tell them something that I've been thinking about. Of course, they might laugh at me, but I know it's going to stick with them. Yeah, they will remember. Grandparents need to be intentional about this. How do they go about being intentional? I mean, we've talked a little bit about that, but what advice do you give as we close our conversation? Well, being intentional, I think, means to just, this is a tough job, grandparents and parents, is just to always be aware of what the situation is and how you can use that situation to do something good or point out something good, whether it's watching a kid at a ball game. It's not just hugging them at the end. It's hugging them and saying something intentional like, Hey, when you, I love how when you struck out, you stood up there like a man and you just walked off. That's awesome. I appreciate that in you. So just using your words with that intentionality about it. Like, you know what? I'm, I may have like five seconds with them, but I'm going to do something meaningful, important with them. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, once again, the book is titled Rockstar Grandparent, How You Can Lead the Way, Light the Road, and Launch a Legacy. Chris Howard, thank you so much for joining us today. I so appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I loved it. (laughs) Thank you so much. By the way, the book is uh, published by Waterbrook, and you can find it in bookstores. It's 5 o'clock. We've got news and traffic coming up at the 5 o'clock hour. And we'll be talking with Jim Campbell, Senior Counsel for ADF, where he focuses on appellate litigation. We're going to talk about the Supreme Court's decision to weigh in on an EEOC versus a funeral home case that has a pretty significant impact or import. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. If you've just joined us, welcome. Today we're going to talk with Jim Campbell. He's senior counsel with the Alliance Defending Freedom, where he focuses on appellate litigation. We're going to talk about the Supreme Court's decision. We touched on it a bit yesterday to weigh in on whether the EEOC, or for that matter, the courts, can redefine sex from Title VII, substituting gender identity for the word sex in non-discrimination laws without Congress uh, passing a new law. It's significant, and we'll explain why. Uh, when he joins us at the bottom of the hour today, Jim Campbell from ADF will be with us uh, later this hour. Well, President Trump met with Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey at the White House yesterday to discuss the social media giant, which he's often accused of political bias. He cited an internal Twitter email, Motherboard, reported um, Tuesday that Dorsey was set to have a 30-minute closed-door meeting with the president. The meeting, which was at the um, invitation of the White House, would discuss the health of the public conversation on Twitter, the email said. Well, great meeting this afternoon at the White House with Jack from Twitter. Lots of subjects discussed regarding their platform and the world of social media in general. Look forward to keeping an open dialogue, Trump tweeted later Tuesday afternoon with a photo of that meeting. Well, Jack had a constructive meeting with the president of the White House, uh, president of the United States today at the president's invitation. A Twitter spokeswoman said they discussed Twitter commitment to protecting the health of the public conversation ahead of the 2020 election and efforts underway to respond to the opioid crisis. Well, Twitter and other tech giants such as Facebook and Google, they've been high profile targets of the president who repeatedly has accused them of anti-conservative bias. And there's plenty of evidence to back that up. Just hours before meeting Dorsey, Trump complained in a tweet that uh, Twitter doesn't treat me well as a Republican, adding that the platform is very discriminatory. Well, Trump might be one example that he use, but there are many others that are unconnected to politics or to Trump, which I think might make a better example of the pattern that we've been seeing. Trump, however, remains an avid user of Twitter. He harnessed the platform to great effect during the 2016 presidential elect. Some would hope perhaps with a little less effect or at least frequency, but it certainly helped him in his effort to achieve the White House. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit ruled on Good Friday to uphold the House of Representatives practice that it start each session with a prayer by a clergy, a regular feature of the proceedings since 1789. It's remarkable in the 21st century, in 2019, that such a practice uh, was upheld. Rather, The Federal Appeals Court sided with Reverend Patrick Conroy in his official capacity as House Chaplain and the chamber itself in a lawsuit brought by Daniel Barker, co-president of the Freedom From Religion Foundation. Barker, of course, as you might know, is an atheist. He attempted to become a guest chaplain to uh, present a secular, most likely insulting message for an ongoing uh, session of the U.S. House of Representatives. Well, Barker, who is a militant and angry atheist, applied to the House of Representatives to deliver a secular message in lieu of a prayer. Reverend Conroy 
um, rejected Barker's application in 2015 because he was ordained in a denomination in which he no longer practices. But over the course of litigation challenging that denial, Conroy said Barker could not serve as a guest chaplain because he wanted to deliver a secular prayer, which is an oxymoron. The House rules require a religious invocation to be delivered. Representative Mark uh, Pocan, a Wisconsin Democrat, invited Barker to serve as guest chaplain back in 2015. The chaplain's office denied Barker's request in December of 2015. Barker filed suit in 2016. Well, in a unanimous ruling released on Friday, Good Friday, a three-judge panel affirmed a lower court decision to dismiss Barker's claim that his uh, rights were violated under the Establishment Clause. Writing for the court, Judge David Tattle He explained that the legal question was not whether Barker was blocked from offering a prayer because he was an atheist, but rather about the content of that prayer. Tattle wrote, and I quote, To resolve this case, however, we need not decide whether there is a constitutional difference between excluding a would-be prayer giver from the guest chaplain program because he is an atheist and excluding him because he has expressed a desire to deliver a non-religious prayer. Even though we accept as true Barker's allegation that Conroy rejected him because he is an atheist, the House's requirement that the prayers must be religious nonetheless precludes Barker from doing the very thing he asks us to order Conroy to allow him to do, deliver a secular prayer. Well, Liberty Council's uh, founder and chairman, Matt Staver, in response said, it's fitting that on Good Friday, the court upheld the uh, tradition of seeking God's guidance at the opening of each session of the House of Representatives. I have personally debated Dan Barker. He is the most militant and angry atheist I have ever met. His opening remarks in the debate cannot be printed. He had no intention of being respectful, but rather wanted to use the opportunity to rant against Christians and Jesus the Christ. Our nation's legislature has opened with religious prayer by clergy since 1789 as a reflection of the faith of our founders. This great tradition was initiated by Benjamin Franklin and, according to this latest court ruling, will continue. While three Democratic senators revealed on Earth Day, which was Monday, that they are launching the Environmental Justice Caucus in the Senate to raise awareness and address environmental justice issues such as systematic racism and discrimination. Now, you might have some difficulty making a connection between the two, but uh, they said in uh, announcing the new coalition, we cannot achieve economic justice or social justice in this country without also addressing environmental justice. The fact that uh, communities of color, low-income communities, and indigenous communities across the country disproportionately face environmental hazards and harmful pollutants on a daily basis has been ignored for far too long. Now, the case we won't go into and whether or not it has been made, uh, we won't do that today. But he went on to say, or I should say Illinois Senator Tammy Duckworth went on to say, every American has the right to breathe safe air, drink clean water, live on uncontaminated land, regardless of their zip code, the size of their wallet and the color of their skin. However, too often that is not the case, especially for low income communities and people of color. I would argue that low income communities is probably Uh, the area or the emphasis that ought to be uh, in place. But nonetheless, Booker Duckworth and Democratic Delaware Senator Tom Carper announced that the caucus will work in conjunction with the House Environmental Justice Task Force, which is comprised of members of the Congressional Black Caucus, Congressional Hispanic Caucus and Asian Pacific American Caucus further balkanizing the uh, the country. The caucus will raise awareness of the many environmental and pollution issues that have created public health challenges, which disproportionately impact low-income communities and communities of color. Laudable. I'm not sure this is the coalition or the route to take, um, but nonetheless, the announcement made. 
And oral arguments were heard at the Supreme Court on Tuesday. They were ostensibly about whether the 2020 census uh, could include a question about citizenship. We'll talk more about that in just a moment when we come back from the break. Also, we'll be uh, hearing from Jim Campbell, senior counsel with the Alliance Defending Freedom. We'll talk about the Supreme Court's decision to hear three cases, three separate cases, that each of which have lower court rulings um, that contradict one another. And the Supreme Court uh, presumably will clarify what Title Seven actually says in its uh, effort to... Um, Establish non-discrimination laws. So we'll get into that with him at the bottom of this hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 18 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, oral arguments heard at the Supreme Court yesterday were ostensibly about whether the 2020 census could include a question about citizenship. But... Well, maybe there was more to it. The reason the case rocketed to the Supreme Court and has been so hotly contested is that the debate hinges at bottom on two starkly different visions of America. Mike Gonzalez writes for the Daily Signal that in one vision, what matters is loyalty to an affiliation with a nation state that is self-contained, independent, civic and colorblind. In the other vision, priority is given to one's membership in a a subnational group that is based on subjective self-identity like race or sexual orientation and association with that group yields benefits and preferences in everything from hiring to contracting, employment, housing, and even electoral uh, redistricting. The divide essentially comes down to a commitment to America as a nation versus a commitment to one's subgroup and the hierarchy of victimhood. There's one of the greatest debates of our time, not just here, but around the world. Whatever the Supreme Court decides and an opinion is needed for summer if the Census Bureau is to meet its deadline in printing millions of forms, rest assured that this debate will go on, uh, rather will not go away any time soon. To paraphrase Mark Twain, reports of the death of the nation state seem to have been greatly exaggerated. Despite pressure from above, from sovereignty-draining transnational institutions like the United Nations and European Union, and from below, uh, from identity groups based on race, sex, ethnicity, sexual orientation, disability, you name it, add to the list, uh, whatever the status, and anything else that can confer conceptual victimhood on an individual, the nation-state has shown remarkable resilience. Defenders of the nation-state remind us that democracy, the rule of law, self-determination, liberty, and everything else Americans and like-minded people hold dear depend on temp- uh, uh, territorially and culturally defined nation-states. Its opponents like to portray the nation-state as archaic, unnecessary, and a gateway to authoritarianism, if not worse. The Trump administration has championed the sovereigntist view and in 2017 recognized the importance of citizenship by requesting that a question on citizenship be added to the 2020 census. Progressive groups have left no stone unturned in their bid to frustrate the administration on this and, for that matter, every other front. Notably, these same groups defend the panoply of other census questions that divide Americans by sex, ethnicity and race. These groups argue that the citizenship question would depress responses among certain marginalized groups, especially Hispanics. Yet the Census Bureau says it has no credible evidence that the question would affect the quality of the data. It's been on the census, by the way, for many decades, um, but uh, ceased to be for several decades. Dozens of progressive organizations brought suit in New York, joined by 18 states in the District of Columbia. They won in district court in New York. Thus, the case Tuesday was uh, Department of Commerce versus New York. 
The hearing Tuesday didn't in the least devote itself to the large question of nationhood, sovereignty, and the like. Instead, there was a lot of technical and statistical back and forth between liberal justices and United States Solicitor General uh, Noel Francisco, who represented the administration, and between the conservative justices and the New York Solicitor General uh, Barbara Underwood. Dale Ho, the lawyer for the New York plaintiff, and Douglas Letter, the lawyer who represented the Democrat-controlled House of Representatives. All of these latter individuals argued against including the citizenship question. It's difficult, as usual, to predict which way the court will go. Ho did his side no favors by admitting at one point that, yes, the Trump administration is right, that citizenship data is needed to enforce the Voting Rights Act of 1964, which is sacrosanct. Uh, to so many. At issue is the fact that the Voting Rights Act does indeed call in some uh, places for drawing districts where at least 50 percent of the voting population or members of a racial or ethnic minority. Ho, perhaps unwittingly, made the case that if the minority group has relatively low citizenship rates, for example, as is the case with Hispanic populations in some circumstances, then you need citizenship data to make sure that they're uh, drawing a district in which minority voters are, in fact, a majority of the population. That data is now provided by the American Community Survey, a smaller census product that goes out to fewer households. But some states, ironically, including some of those uh, suing the Trump administration, have complained that that data is not reliable. Justice Neil Gorsuch uh, jumped on Ho's argument and pointed out that some of the states who are now respondents uh, before us have in litigation, including in this court, argued that American Community Survey data should not be relied upon for purposes of citizenship or other purposes, that the census data is more accurate. What uh, What do we do about that? It seems to me like you kind of put government in a bit of a catch-22, end quote. Well, it is uh, the unified uh, left that is in catch-22. The Voting Rights Act, as it is currently interpreted, put it there. The left does not mind, in fact, loves the racial gerrymandering that uh, aided by census questions of ethnicity, race, and so forth. But because what is actually needed is uh, voters, the administration can now say it needs citizenship data since only citizens are allowed to vote and only citizens should be considered in determining where those um, lines are drawn. Well, this essentially means citizenship data on the American uh, nation itself, not arbitrary subgroups, would determine the shape of the House of Representatives, the number of co- and composition of electoral votes at election time. Our elections would more accurately represent the American uh, that really exists, not the faux America envisioned by intersectional activists that includes people who do not fall under the constitutional protection. To win this issue, not just in the Supreme Court, but in the all-important court of public opinion, those who believe in the nation-state have to constantly make the case that its views of view rather of the nation is non-racial, but instead is truly inclusive and colorblind, a notion that is largely rejected these days. We must show the other vision leads to balkanization, conflict, and ultimately national splintering, which, if it means winning an election, some are willing and quite happy to promote. Well, workers and retirees have long been warned that Social Security's trust fund is going to run out to run out of funds sometime in the future and that the program has many trillions of dollars in unfunded obligations. But what does this year's 2019 trustees report revealing $16.8 trillion in unfunded obligations over the next 75 years and insolvency in 2035 mean for current workers and retirees? Well, 
For starters, 2035 is only 16 years away. That means that anyone below the age of 52 today is on track to receive only 75 to 80 percent of their scheduled benefits. I get something in the mail about every few months that tells me how much I would get in Social Security if I retire now or if I retire later or at full retirement age. That would no longer apply, or at least the math would have to be changed, uh, altered dramatically. But it's not just younger workers who will receive benefit cuts. Consider people who are retiring in 2019 at age 62. Benefit cuts will kick in for them at age 78. Social Security's insolvency is not some far-off event. It will affect virtually all current and future workers and many of today's current retirees. Now let's move on to the magnitude of Social Security's $16.8 trillion shortfall. That's the equivalent of $107,000 for every worker in the United States, roughly two times the average earnings. That's also enough to turn young workers into millionaires. If Sarah, who just started her first job out of college, put $107,000 into a retirement account and never added another penny, she would have $1 million upon retirement, assuming a 5% real rate of return. Unfortunately, though, today's workers are starting out in the hole instead of ahead of the game. In addition to already paying 12.4% of their paychecks to Social Security, current workers will either have to pay drastically higher taxes as much as 33% more or receive lower benefits. If Congress acted today to make Social Security solvent through a 22% tax increase, Terrence, another young worker who uh, makes $50,000 a year, would pay an extra $1,400 in taxes every year, an increase of about $6,200 to $7,600 per year. If Congress fails to do anything until the trust fund run out of reserves in 2035, which is very likely, Terrence's payroll tax would have to be uh, would have to rise by 29 percent and he would pay eighteen hundred dollars more per year. That's 18 or rather eight thousand dollars total in Social Security taxes. Well, what if Congress cuts benefits instead? That's worth considering. That would translate into about fifty seven thousand dollars less in benefits for Terrence, assuming he lives to age 82, let's say. If Congress were to cut all benefits by 17 percent immediately and almost seventy eight thousand dollars less in benefits if Congress waits until 2035 and cuts benefits by 23 percent. So should workers hope that Congress increase taxes to preserve their scheduled benefits or reduce benefits to prevent tax hikes? Well, that is something of a um, conundrum. Analysts um, uh, it's, uh, at the Heritage Foundation provide a resounding case for not raising taxes and instead implementing gradual and targeted benefit uh, reductions, which you can find on their website uh, with the uh, article titled What Social Security's so- Shortfall Means for You, the Daily Signal. Certainly worth considering. And as we're approaching another um, national election, these are questions that should be asked. What do you intend to do about Social Security and Medicare? Now, the usual response is we're not going to do anything because those who are on Social Security and Medicare are terrified of the impact that any changes might have for them. Uh, Those who are younger probably aren't thinking as seriously about it as they should and may not be aware of the of what um, lies ahead. But unless something is done one way or the other, and uh, the article I mentioned a moment ago, in fact, I'll try to put a link on the Georgine Rice Show, uh, may help us to calculate what we think is in not only our best interest, but in the interest of the nation moving forward and, the, forward, and those who hope to retire at some point in the future, relying at least in part 
on Social Security. It's also an incentive to consider what you can do on your own to begin preparing for retirement because Social Security is less and less likely to be sufficient. In fact, it's insufficient today, but even less likely to be sufficient to retire on for future generations. All right, 29 minutes after 5 o'clock is our time. Jim Campbell will be my next guest. He's senior counsel with the Alliance Defending Freedom. He focuses on appellate litigation. The Supreme Court, as we discussed yesterday, has announced that they're going to take on three cases that really hinge on uh, one word in Title VII. It's the word sex, and redefining it or broadening its definition is something that the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, in one case, and Uh, Some of the lower courts have done in two other cases. Well, the Supreme Court has taken this uh, on itself to try to clarify what that word means uh, when it comes to non-discrimination laws um, in the workplace. So we'll talk with him about that. A really important discussion because it has much broader implications than whether or not, as in this uh, case that we'll be discussing, a funeral home um, can fire an employee who refuses to wear appropriate dress, as is the uh, dress code, for their business. So stick around. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, as we mentioned yesterday, the U.S. Supreme Court agreed on Monday to review a lower court decision that redefines the word sex in federal law to mean gender identity. Well, Alliance Defending Freedom Attorneys representing the Michigan Funeral Home filed a petition asking the high court to take the case. Well, the high court also agreed to take two other cases. Well, for the purposes of our discussion, Title VII is a federal law that intends to ensure equal opportunities in employment regardless of a person's race, color, religion, national origin, or sex. Sex and gender identity are not the same thing. Well, here to talk with us about this is Jim Campbell. He's senior counsel with ADF, where he focuses on appellate litigation. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Hey, my pleasure. Well, let's talk about the case RG and GR Harris Funeral Home versus Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Give us a little bit of that background. So Harris Funeral Homes is a small family-owned business that has been serving grieving families in the the Detroit, Michigan area for over 100 years. And first and foremost, on their on their list of priorities is serving the interest of these grieving families. So in 2007, Harris Funeral Homes hired a male funeral director, and after seven years, he came to the owner with a letter indicating that uh, he was no longer going to dress wearing uh, male attire, but was going to begin presenting as a woman while interacting with grieving families. The owner of the funeral home determined that this wasn't in the best interest of the families he served. And for that decision now, the federal government, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, has been relentlessly targeting and pursuing Harris Funeral Homes for the last six years. And what's at issue is what Title VII language actually means, the federal law that's intended to ensure equal opportunities and employment. The use of the word sex has been broadened by the EEOC and in uh, two other cases that the Supreme Court has agreed to hear. Uh, to um, include gender identity, which isn't uh, isn't tied, it's not tethered to being male or female. It's not an objective fact based on biology. It's one a decision that an individual makes about how they want to present themselves at a given time. 
Yeah, so stopping sex discrimination is a good thing. That's what this federal mm-hmm. law, Title VII, does. But redefining sex in the law hurts that goal, and it creates big problems. For example, uh, it undermines the dignity and privacy interests of women and girls who are now forced under that sort of a law to use uh, restroom and locker room and shower facilities with men who identify as women. Um, there are a host of, of circumstances where this has already arisen throughout society where these sorts of changes in the law have occurred. And so this is not a good change. This is not something that a federal agency can do and can impose on all of us without us having a say. If you want to change the law, there's a proper way to do it. You go to Congress and you make your case. That hasn't happened here, and it's illegitimate for a federal agency to try to do what it's been doing. So unelected bureaucrats and even judges do not have the authority to make that kind of change, to reinterpret the language that is explicit, explicitly laid down in Title VII, which is the product of, of Congress. That's right. And in this case, what we have is a business owner being punished for doing what the law allowed. No business owner should be punished for following existing law. Businesses have the the right to rely on what the law is, not what a judge or a federal agency wants it to be. And so that, that also is at the heart of this case, is the fundamental injustice to our client for punishing him for following existing law. My understanding is the Supreme Court uh, agreed on Monday to hear this case, but also two others that are similar, and they all hinge on the interpretation or rather the reinterpretation of the word sex as it's being uh, used and some conf- uh, conflicts in the way some of the lower courts have ruled in these cases. What is your expectation moving forward with the Supreme Court taking up these cases? We're hopeful that the court will make it clear that these federal agencies and lower courts don't have the power to redefine the law. That if these fundamental questions uh, are for the people to decide for themselves through their elected officials. And in the case of substituting gender identity into the law, that this creates a whole host of problems. um, And that for that reason, neither courts nor Congress should make this change. Yeah, absolutely. Now, to you and I, it may seem obvious that this is a big deal, but to some of our listeners, they may not be convinced. What's the fallout? What's the the consequence if um, the Supreme Court does not uphold the actual language in Title VII and if Congress does not affirm at some point in the future that this is the right course to take? Uh, What's at stake here? There's a lot at stake because big problems result when gender identity is plugged into these sorts of laws. For example, um, if you uh, were to put gender identity in, in an anti-discrimination law that, that governs within schools, then now uh, female athletes in high school have to compete against boys who identify as girls. And this just happened in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. And uh, two uh, boys who identify as girls competed in the track and field championships, and they placed first and second. And so all the other girls were placed at a disadvantage and were, frankly, um, you know, not given the same opportunity that they should have been giving a fair, a fair opportunity to compete with other girls. Uh, so that's just one example. Another example is that it, when you redefine sex to, to mean gender identity, that you open these private spaces like locker rooms 
and restrooms and shower facilities to people of the opposite sex. So this is an issue that poses significant consequences throughout all of society, and that's why we should be concerned with what the court does here. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's incomprehensible to me as a former female athlete in high school and at university that I would be uh, pressed to compete against the men, and that uh, once we finish that competition, where they would most likely uh, win because of reasons we won't go into now, uh, I have to shower with a, a male, a, an anatomical male, a biological male in the in the locker room. It's just inconceivable that that we have come to this pass, but that's precisely where we are. And I am so grateful for the work of Alliance Defending Freedom, your work in helping to draw our attention to this, but also championing this cause that now is going to be heard by the U.S. Supreme Court. What's the timing on this? Uh, the parties will be filing written arguments with the court in the next few months, and the court will probably hear arguments sometime in the fall. So um, there won't be a, a, a decision from the court probably within the next year or so. Um, but we're hopeful that the court will take a look at what's going on and will make it clear that federal agencies and lower federal courts do not have the power to redefine the word sex in the law. Now, in the meantime, Harris Funeral Homes, uh, are they permitted to uh, to follow the law as it's stated, or what's what's the status for them while they're waiting for that decision? Uh, Harris continues to do what it's done for the last 100 years, and that is serve grieving families in the community. Um, so they are, you know, doing what they've always done. They're doing well. Uh, they, they're hopeful that they won't be punished for following existing law. They're hopeful that they and other business owners can continue to rely on what the law is and not what federal agencies want it to be. Well, again, I appreciate your work and for uh, helping us to understand some of the challenges that we face in this country as there are efforts to undermine the clear language of the law in favor of an ideology that has not been widely embraced by the uh, by the public. Uh, Jim Campbell, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it very much. Again, Jim Campbell is senior counsel with the Alliance Defending Freedom, where he focuses on appellate litigation. Uh, we're talking about the Supreme Court's decision to weigh in on whether the EEOC in this case or the courts can redefine sex in Title VII, substituting gender identity uh, for sex in non-discrimination laws without uh, Congress. Um, now, I think it's uh, important to emphasize once again that uh, sex and gender identity are not the same thing. Sex treats uh, whether someone is male or female as an objective fact that's based in uh, biology. Uh, in contrast, gender identity is a fluid. It's a difficult to define concept based on subjective perceptions. And that's what uh, has been uh, others have been trying to introduce, interject into the law. So we'll certainly continue to follow this, but it sounds like it's going to be a long road between now, the Supreme Court hearing the case, and a decision being announced. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Tony Perkins points out in his column in the Daily Signal that it doesn't take a rocket science, uh, scientist rather, to understand the First Amendment. I mean, it's a pretty simple uh, concept. It's easy to understand if you've read it in the Constitution. Or maybe after the spat over a speech by NASA's Jim Bridenstine, it, it does. NASA's chief was criticized for mentioning his Christianity in a speech. He wasn't imposing his Christianity on employees. He didn't do it on company time. He was speaking, in fact, to a Christian group about his personal Christian faith. Thanks to the double standards of secularism, public officials can't even talk about faith without making headlines. It's no wonder, then, that 
When the head of America's space program gave remarks at a Christian ministry, even he had trouble finding signs of intelligent life in the criticism that followed. Well, Capital Ministries is the organization that he uh, had supported for years. It hardly is a controversial group. Nine of the president's 15 cabinet officials are sponsors of that ministry, whose aim is pretty simple, influencing government with biblical teaching. You know, the same kind of biblical teaching that inspired and influenced our Constitution and many of the laws that we live under. Well, during his talk, uh, Mr. Bridenstein, who um, who, who uh, talked about the importance of that goal and what it means in the context of the times. I love what Ralph said earlier. He said, we're not trying to Christianize the U.S. government. We believe in an institutional separation, but we also believe in influence. And that's a big distinction and an important distinction. And that's why I love this ministry, he said. And I'll pause for a moment so that you can express your personal outrage, having heard what he actually said. Well, Bridenstine, he uh, couldn't have made uh, been more clear. No one in the Trump administration is trying to create a theocracy. They just want the same freedom to bring their personal views to bear on public policy that liberals have. Well, still, secularists like uh, business insiders Dave Mosier, he seemed intent on dragging Mr. Bridenstine through the mud for daring to talk about actual NASA history, like Buzz Aldrin's communion with the, the um, on the moon, rather, and the Apollo 8 astronauts' Bible reading in orbit. I mean, who would have the audacity? In a 2,000-word rant about the faith of President Donald Trump's team, Mr. Mosier insists that some ethics and legal experts outside NASA have expressed concern over Bridenstine's uh, language. They believe it ran afoul of the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment, which outlines a separation of church and state, and might have also violated ethics rules for federal executives. So as a private citizen speaking to an organization uh, that is a Christian ministry and endorsing the work that they do to try to influence public policy in ways that reflect a biblical worldview is now tantamount to capital crime. Quoting people like Virginia Cantor of Citizens for Responsible Ethics, Mr. Mosier tried to paint Bridenstine as a typical establishment clause abuser. One's personal beliefs, he wrote, must be respected, but when appearing in an official capacity, you have to adhere to certain ethical standards, Mr. Cantor explained. One is not to give the impression that you are officially endorsing any products or services or enterprise. Funny, where was uh, Mr. Mosier when former President Barack Obama was headlining political fundraisers for Planned Parenthood? Or worse, invoking God's blessing on the abortion giant. Do you hear them? They're the crickets. Well, everyone from Hillary Clinton to Speaker Nancy Pelosi have not only endorsed the group's uh, service, but funneled hundreds of millions of taxpayer dollars to it. Again, referring to Planned Parenthood. No one seemed to care when they appeared in their official capacities to preach the gospel of abortion. But put a Christian on the stage from the Trump administration, encouraging something as innocent as prayer. And they're a walking ethics violation. This is NASA, for crying out loud. What are they worried about? Bridenstine, he's uh, sending astronauts to evangelize the galaxy. Well, well, one would only hope if secularists are upset about Bridenstine's speech, then they should have been shaking the White House gates over the last administration's agenda for the space agency. How quickly we forget those shocking comments in 2010 when former President Obama told NASA Administrator Charles Bolden that his new mission should be to find a way to reach out to the Muslim world and engage much more with dominantly Muslim nations. Now, is that an endorsement? Is that uh, endorsing a product, a service, an enterprise. 
Apparently it wasn't an issue back then when Mr. Mosier was, yes, still writing for the same organization. If you're looking for a textbook abuse of public policy, I'd say start with the Obama administration. After that, give a few, um, giving a few remarks at a charity function seems like, well, small potatoes. But hypocrisy is the name of the Democratic game. Like Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and countless other Trump officials before him, Bridenstein is just the latest target of an intolerant left whose only goal is purging faith from public life and history. If activists can't get Christians to stay quiet, then they'll try to drive them out of government altogether. That will be tough in this administration, thanks to the leadership of a president who embraces the idea of that kind of tolerance, if you will. If his team has learned anything, it's how to stand up to bullies. That shouldn't be hard for a man like Bridenstine, who is already light years ahead of his opposition. Again, appreciate uh, Tony Perkins pointing that out. Tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Kathy Branzell. As you might know, the National Day of Prayer is approaching. It's always the first Thursday in May, so that's next week. Uh, She is one of the organizers of the National Day of Prayer, but she's also the author of a book, An Invitation to Prayer, Peace, Love, Wisdom, Happiness, Purpose. And she'll join us to talk about uh, her book, An Invitation to Prayer, on Thursday. On Friday, we're looking forward to lightening up. Taking a look at the lighter side of the news, we've been collecting stuff all week that we'll share with you uh, during Friday's program. So we'll look forward to that. I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Also want to remind you, 1030 tomorrow morning, Better Together, the Trinity broadcast for women by women, heard weekdays, their new um, live program. So check that out. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.